you know, there's no immediate fix, but over a period of 10, 15, 20 years, uh, it stops the clock. It could it stops the clock on climate change. It could even reverse the clock on climate change, but it buys us time. It buys us significant time. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is the Climate 21 podcast, the number one podcast showcasing best practices in climate emissions reductions. And I'm your host, Global Vice President for SAP, Tom Raftery. Climate 21 is the name of an initiative by SAP to allow our customers calculate, report and reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. In this Climate 21 podcast, I will showcase best practices and thought leadership by SAP, by our customers, by our partners and by our competitors, if they're game, in climate emissions reductions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice to be sure you don't miss any episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Climate 21 podcast. My name is Tom Raftery with SAP. And with me on the show today, I have my special guest, Rebecca. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Rebecca Moses. I'm the Director of Impact Strategy at Impossible Foods. We're a plant-based meat company based in California. Plant-based meat company, Rebecca. (laughs) I know what Impossible Foods is, but for people who are unaware, what's a plant-based meat company? It's a lot to unpack there, isn't it? Um, let me, yeah, let me try and explain that a bit. So the, the products that we make are meat from plants. Um, so impossible burger, impossible sausage. These are, uh, products that basically recapitulate the same experience of eating meat from an animal, but we do it using plant-based ingredients, uh, in order to be vastly more environmentally sustainable. Um, now from a business model perspective, I've heard us called, food tech, I've heard us called, you know, food manufacturing, we're something a little bit different. We're, our CEO likes to to say that we're a planet company. Uh, The reason we were founded was to basically provide a consumer solution for these big wicked problems like climate change, extinction, um, figuring out how to get a handle on, um, on, you know, land use issues and habitat conversion. But it's hard to lead with that. So we really lead with, we are a, a company that's making delicious uh, meat. We're just doing it from plants instead of using animals. Okay. And you said burgers and sausage. Is, so that's where you've started. Obviously, there are plans to go beyond that? There are definitely plans to go beyond that. We started with uh, a burger is a bit of a misnomer. Um, it's actually a ground beef product. Uh, so we started with that in 2016, I believe is when we launched our first product. Um, very, very small launch. I think we were only in food service. So only in restaurants, we started in New York. Um, and since then we've had really explosive growth and last year, no, maybe it was this year in, in, in Corona context, everything feels like it blurs (laughs) together. It was within 12 months ago, we launched the impossible sausage, um, so we started with a burger product um, that's super versatile. Like you can use it the same way that you use ground beef in any kind of recipe, whether that's, you know, kofta or, or tacos or, or a burger. Um, but it's like this very iconic product, right? Especially in American cuisine. So we started there um, also in part because, you know, the environmental issues associated with beef are orders of magnitude above that of other animal categories. But the plan is to have a, a full portfolio um, of basically meat made from plants, everything from eggs and chicken and sausage to whole cuts. Uh, steak is kind of a, a big frontier for us. And that's something we're pretty excited about too. Sure. And, and the space I've heard it referred to as clean meat. Is is that 
is that the right nomenclature or is there another one you prefer? Oh, well, now we're going deep. Um, <laughs> it, you know, when I think of clean meat, um, I don't think there is an, an arbiter um, on this. So I'm going to be the arbiter for a moment. Um, when I think of clean meat, I think of cellular agriculture um, and, and kind of the um, conventions, naming conventions around what we're, we're calling cellular agriculture. So those are two very different types of production. Um, with plant-based meat or meat from plants, which is where Impossible Foods uh, kind of plays, that's our category, we take um, oil, uh, so fats and oils from plants, uh, proteins from plants, and then heme, which is our proprietary ingredient, uh, like hemoglobin protein. And we combine functional carbohydrates, binders, all of these are, are ingredients from plants, and we combine them together in a very traditional food manufacturing context. Um, so we're buying uh, soy protein, coconut oil, sunflower oil, potato protein, all these kind of almost commodity-based ingredients, and we mix them all together. We just have a ton of research and development on the front end to figure out exactly what ratios, exactly what format you need to bring those things together in order to get that same nutritional experience, culinary experience, sensory experience that you would get from the animal version. Now, much different over on kind of the cellular agriculture side, which, and I'm not an authority on this by any means, uh, really is using cellular agriculture uh, and kind of uh, fermentation-based production methods to create the same animal tissues, but doing so without the actual animal body. So kind of an, a fermentation-based uh, synthetic meat. Um, and again, we're getting into vernacular that becomes very um, specific very quickly, but two very different production systems. So done in bioreactors. There was a, a company got a license to sell chicken meat in Singapore a number of weeks back based on, on chicken produced from live chickens. So no slaughter of animals. They just took cells from chickens, grew them in, in bioreactors, I want to think, and were able to produce chicken meat from that. So that, that's the kind of thing you're talking about there. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's very different than what we do. Um, I think our take on this is, any ways that we can build a more sustainable food system, that's fantastic. There's a lot of routes to getting there. We see this amazing abundance and diversity of, uh, of crops that are out there already. Um, so if we can take parts of those crops and bring them together in a way that recreates that same experience that we're used to in our you know, food culture of eating meat from animals, that's the route that we think is the most, uh, I think, efficacious and probably powerful way of doing it. But there's a whole, it's, it's a very big toolbox. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. And, and speaking of toolboxes, we should probably just comment on the fact that there's a little bit of construction happening in your house right now, which might account for some of the background noise that people might be hearing. It happening in the house and next to the house. Apparently, it's the season for uh, home renovations in San Francisco <laughs> and we're surrounded. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Uh, be before we came, before we turned the recorder on, we were talking as well about uh, another company in the space beyond meat. And we, you happen to say that you don't see them as competitors. Rather, you see meat from animals as, as your competition. And I thought it, it's very similar to how Tesla, for example, refer to other EV manufacturers. They, they say our competition is not other electric car manufacturers. It is the internal combustion engine vehicles. So it seems you, you're quite in alignment there and not seeing other people in this space as your competitors, but rather the people who are killing animals are your competitors. 
That's exactly right. I mean, there's an enormous industry uh, out there in terms of livestock products. It's about $1 trillion globally. Um, we are still a pretty small fish in that pond. And so is Beyond Meat. And we're, we're all kind of growing in this space very, very quickly. But the, I think the velocity of growth, you know, people talk about kind of double digit growth of this industry year over year, uh, triple digit growth in some cases. It, it really... Um, you have to take that in context with the magnitude of the incumbent industry and, and sure. the, the enormity of the livestock sector broadly. So um, always good to keep in mind uh, rising tides of sell boats on, on plant-based meat, as far as I'm concerned. You want people to have a positive experience. That's that's the big thing. You want consumers to, to access a product. I get to, I get to be pre-competitive in my work, so I can say this. Um, it, whether that's Beyond Meat, whether that's Impossible Foods, whether that's another um, actor out there, you just want them to be able to deliver consumers, deliver to consumers a product that they're excited about, that they're not, you know, choosing simply because it's sustainable. They're choosing it because it meets all the needs that they have, whether that's price, taste, availability. Um, and so there's a lot more room in this space. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And and to that point, it's interesting as well to see that some of the traditional meat companies are investing in this space as well. The likes of Cargill and those and Tyson, I think, have made investments in this space too. They have. And and I kind of wonder, I mean, to some extent, you would assume that at a strategic level, um, they sort of recognize that the planetary boundaries are for their system are real, um, that growth of the livestock sector as it is now um, is going to already has really um, pushed past the, bio, the biophysical capacity of the planet to sustain. And so when you have an industry that's sort of predicated on um, extensive grazing systems that, that relies on frankly land use and habitat conversion, deforestation um, to, uh, to make enough space for itself, you know, if I'm, in charge of those companies, I, I start thinking about, well, what are ways we can diversify this portfolio? Because this is pretty risky. Um, so, you know, I think some of this might just be a, a recognition of the scaling constraints of, of that industry. Yeah. And they're, they're even starting to call themselves protein companies now rather than meat companies, uh, again, for probably similar reasons and, and branding issues as well, I'm sure. I've seen that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of fascinating um, watching the evolution happen in real time. So, we, we haven't discussed the, I mean, you, you mentioned it briefly in the start there, the, the, the amount of resources it takes to, to create actual beef from animals. Do you want to address some of that and some of the reason why it's important to have things like Impossible Foods? Absolutely. And, and it is, um, if you're kind of just encountering these statistics, it's a little wild. It's almost hard to believe them, but I assure you they're credible. In terms of the global footprint of, of animal agriculture, so let's look at the whole production system, not just a single product. Animal farming globally accounts for about half of the ice-free land area of the planet. That comes at an enormous opportunity cost for wildlife, all these animals in mean, competition. Yep. Exactly. So even if it's grasslands, you know, you're kind of sharing an ecosystem. Um, the more managed animals you have on that land, the less wildlife you can land, uh, have because they're all asking, they're all looking for the same inputs or, you know, 
rather different inputs within that same ecological niche. And so um, it, it's something that we don't talk enough about, I think, is the, the land footprint associated with our food production system. Um, so half the ice surface, surface of the land, um, a lot of that's big extensive grazing systems. 30% is, is directly kind of occupied by animal farming in a way that really overwhelms the, the landscape and doesn't have a lot of kind of shared ecosystem. And then about, oh, um, 15 to 18% of the total greenhouse gases from human-caused sources uh, come from farming animals. Um, so one-seventh, about 15 to 18%, that doesn't seem like this huge number necessarily um, when we're talking about climate change. And that is because that number doesn't count something that's very, very important and that it brings us back to land use. It doesn't count the carbon opportunity cost of farming animals. It doesn't count the landscapes that we're not allowing to photosynthesize, grow vegetation, whether it's trees or grasslands, and pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and so there's really recent research that's been done on that that looked at the global opportunity cost of a carbon sink um, that we incur with livestock farming. And the numbers that came out, this was published earlier this year or late last year, uh, was about 200 gigatons of carbon. Now, if you contextualize that in kind of fossil fuel emissions, mm. it, it nets out to about 15 years of fossil fuel burning. So if you combine the fact that with plant-based dietary shifts, you can avoid emissions from livestock herds, that you're reducing the methane that's going out in the, in the atmosphere, you're reducing the nitrous oxide, you combine that with you know, you get to a certain point of scale, you can start sparing land uh, for carbon capture. It really shows you that plant-based meat can be a negative emissions technology in a way that we're not really thinking about. We're not talking about as much as we're talking about, you know, big carbon scrubbers that you can mount up in the in the sky or even like stratospheric um, seeding. Of, uh, there's all sorts of bonkers technologies to, to save climate change. But what, what we really should be thinking about is our, our diets. Um, Anyway, and all this to say, the other side of the equation is water use. Yeah. About 30%, 25% to 30% of the total fresh water on the earth is recruited into animal farming. And again, it goes back to opportunity cost. What else can we do with this water? Um, what are we giving up when we, when we choose to eat meat every day? So if we were to switch over miraculously entirely to plant-based meat tomorrow and you were able to scale up to meet the demand, what kind of savings would we see? We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. It's hard to it's hard to think about an immediate transition, right? Because you do need dietary replacement. Um, livestock right now is supporting nutrition, especially across the global south, in ways that um, you know we need to, as an industry, make sure that we've scaled up alternatives and and, and made sure that food security is kind of the the 
the absolute flagship issue in addition to climate savings, in addition to, to biodiversity uh, progress on, on averting extinction rather. So all that said, all those caveats said, if you did see a pretty rapid shift from plant from animal-based meat to plant-based meat, um, you would see very, very um, gradual uh, succession, uh, gradual land changes. So these grazed landscapes, feed crop landscapes, uh, where we're growing corn, where we're growing soy, if those were no longer recruited into animal production systems, much of it would probably just go back into rewilding to some extent, um, whether that's passively managed or actively restored. Um, it would go back to capturing carbon. It would go back to hosting wildlife. And I, hopefully we, we haven't reached a period where we're so far down the path of extinction that we've lost those biodiversity reservoirs. Um, I think something that we need to be thinking about is, you know, within these food systems, let's say that we we eventually do get to a point where we're sparing, sparing lands, we, we have more room for wildlife. Uh, you need habitat continuity to ensure that wildlife can repopulate these areas. So there, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, the other thing you would see is emissions reductions. Uh, methane, nitrous oxide, the carbon dioxide used to farm crops, um, these things would draw down very, very quickly. And, you know, there's no immediate fix, but over a period of 10, 15, 20 years, uh, it stops the clock. It could it stops the clock on climate change. It could even reverse the clock on climate change, mm. but it buys us time. It buys us significant time to address the other areas that we need to address the energy sector, the building sector. I mean, all of these things, like I said, there's a big toolbox, um, yeah. but one of the strongest, best tools that we have is plant-based diets and plant-based meat to, to feed that consumer demand. Sure. So it's it's the magnitude of change is pretty astounding. Sure, sure. One of the one of the recent guests I had on the podcast is a, a man called Mark Corzelius, and he is the founder and CSO of a company called And Ever, who are a large indoor vertical farm company. And uh, it was a fascinating podcast because he wasn't all frothy saying, you know, this is going to save the world. He was quite you know, matter of fact and saying, well, look, we're at about 80 to 90% of water usage. And uh, from a thousand square meters of indoor vertical farm, we can get the same production that it would take 18,000 square meters of, of land, uh, you know, so about 95% land reduction. So it occurs to me that the combination of large indoor vertical farms feeding into the likes of impossible foods, you know, if that became your food stock, we get a huge reduction of uh, land use for the plants that are going into the production facilities that you have. And therefore, we get a double whammy. It, it's entirely possible. I mean, I think that vertical farming, so my background is agriculture in, in a fairly traditional sense, um, did, not work in, did not work in vertical farming, worked really within um, conservation agriculture and, and what does sustainable agriculture look like on a you know per hectare basis. You know, I think there's a lot of, there's so much value that that we can get from diversifying our food system in sometimes, you know, not immediately intuitive ways. Um, and I think that vertical farming is one of those ways that you can diversify production in a way that will serve localization of food production, um, mm -hmm. particularly in resource scarce environments. I mean, we're seeing a lot of investment from, you know, from the Gulf uh, into vertical farming because of those issues of, of water scarcity. Um, this is, it's, you know, I think potentially a pretty powerful tool for um, food security, food sovereignty. 
and certainly local production. Um, in terms of being a, a vehicle for, for mass amounts of land sparing, that's going to come from, from removing reliance on grazing systems. Uh, the vast majority of the land footprint of agriculture is in grazing, not as much in, in food, uh, food feed crop production or in uh, food production that humans eat. So when you think about, and I'm from the, the American Midwest, I'm from Minnesota, okay. actually from a cow-calf operation in part, um, when you fly over where I'm from, it is just fields and fields and fields of monoculture, corn, soy, sometimes wheat, sometimes oats, sometimes barley. Um, all that corn and soy is not going to feed humans. Uh, 90% of the soy protein produced in the U.S. is going to feed livestock. It's the same thing in Brazil. You know, people talk about soy deforestation. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's still cattle deforestation. It's still, you know, livestock deforestation. You're just seeing the soy, um, but it's not going to make tofu. It's going to feed animals. Um, so the biggest thing that we can do in terms of land sparing really is to, to reduce reliance on the metabolic inefficiency of an animal. Um, if you feed soy directly to a human, it's a direct conversion. Yeah. The protein that was farmed on that unit of land goes to a person, they get that protein. You might have a little bit of process loss, a little bit of you know field loss, food waste. But with an animal, especially with a cow, they're alive for a couple of years. They um, are walking around doing their cow thing. They're <laughs> metabolizing. They're making bones. They're making hides. They're making things we don't eat. Um, and so for that reason, only 3% of the protein and calories that were embodied in the plants that a cow consumes go to you at, as, at the consumer level. So it's this very leaky unit operation. Um, and if we can subvert that, you know, it's this is a, not a perfect number because it doesn't account for things like food loss and food waste, but you, the, the global protein demand today across the entire world could be in theory met with the existing harvest of soybeans right now. I mean, we, we would only need like 3% of the land footprint. Wow. So to me, the biggest thing is plant-based diets and whether that's impossible burger, whether it's a beyond burger, whether it's like, I would love it if everyone just started trading beans for beef. Um, that's the way you get there. It's through the dietary shifts. Fascinating. Fascinating. The other thing, the other statistic that always blows my mind is the fact that something like 80% of the world's antibiotics goes into agriculture as a prophylactic to stop animals getting sick rather than going to humans uh, to stop them getting sick and therefore leaks into the environment and is a cause of multidrug resistant bacteria. Yeah, it's an enormous amount. Um, I hadn't heard the 80%. I, I believe in North America, it's like 50-50, 50% going to humans, 50% going to livestock. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it is uh, it is not necessarily necessary. Um, you know, and in some and a lot cases, of it is because they're being housed in unhygienic conditions. Well, and to promote weight gain, um, especially yeah. with, with ruminants, uh, feed them antibiotics, they'll, they'll gain weight faster, probably in part because they're not getting sick. Um, but it, it does beg the question of, of what the heck are we doing? <laughs> like, what, this is the system we've set up and we're not questioning it nearly enough um, in terms of what the negative externalities are. Uh, taking a slightly different tack, I got to think one of the biggest challenges you and Beyond and all the other companies are going to face is people and attitudes and the desire to eat meat as opposed to a plant-based diet. How do, you, how do you cope with that? Or how do you get around that? Or how do you deal with that? I mean, that's the business model, right? Um, I, I think that historically, we haven't seen a lot of success in trying to push people into plant-based diets through um, 
through narrative or through convincing. Uh, when people are choosing to eat anything, they're they're usually kind of making they're they're meeting their hierarchy of needs. They're they're saying, um, it, does this taste good? Is the price right for me? And can I access it easily? Uh, at some point in there, there's nutritional considerations. At some point in there, there's sustainability considerations, but they're not necessarily what's always top of mind. Um, and so that was, I think, the realization that, that Pat Brown, who's our CEO and founder, had uh, years and years ago when we were founded in 2011. He had gone on sabbatical. He was at Stanford. He was a, a biochemist at Stanford. Um, and he'd gone on sabbatical to kind of think about what he wanted to do with the rest of his working career and was going deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole on animal farming, which I can tell you is a very um, weird rabbit hole to go down because I spent much of my career in agricultural research and sustainable food production and sustainability within food systems. And until I kind of um, tuned into Impossible Foods and, in, and until fairly like recently before I joined the company, I wasn't thinking about this either. Mm. Um, no one, no one gave me an FAO document on the, the, the environmental footprint of livestock while I was going through graduate school. We weren't talking about this stuff within agricultural extension activities. Um, so Pat's going down that rabbit hole and he, I'm speaking out of turn again, but he at some point organized a conference. He brought together all these scientists because he was thinking, well, okay, just quantitatively, if you crack this, a lot of the big problems like climate change, biodiversity loss, a lot of these things are, are halted or even reversed. We've got to tell everyone. Um, so he brings all these scientists together and they have this conference. I believe there's a white paper that came out of it, but then nothing happened. Um, so, so there's awareness building, but what do you have to do to, to move the needle, to get it past just kind of like high level awareness of, yes, there's a problem into what we can do about it. And he realized that the private sector was probably going to be the, the most elegant way of doing that. Um, because if you can address consumption, if you can address consumers in their day-to-day -day choices, well, the scalability of that is, well, by the next couple of decades, it'll be about 9 billion people. Hopefully, mm -hmm. hopefully people are getting access to food that they want to eat every single day. That's not the not the case for everyone, but um, the magnitude of that toolkit is huge. And so what Pat also realized and what I think we've seen borne out across this industry is that people want to make sustainable choices, but they need a, they need a, a way to do it that makes it easy. Uh, and so the Impossible Burger was conceived of as a way to do that. You don't have to compromise on versatility. You don't compromise on taste. You don't compromise on um, ease of access to it, especially as we scale up and we're much more available. That's becoming much more true. We've lowered our prices as well. The goal is to get to price parity with, with commodity animal products. You just need to make it easy and you can't ask consumers to compromise. And once you can sort of check those boxes, the capability to shift diets is there. But if you go to someone and you say, hey, the climate is uh, in distress, uh, also wild animals are dying across the world. What you eat here has an impact on the Amazon forest. People will, depending on who it is and what generation they're from, go, what the heck does me eating a steak in Texas have to do with the Amazon? Um, where'd you get your numbers? I don't believe you. Or I don't know, these pastures look pretty nice to me. Um, so you can't rely on consumer awareness building. You can't rely on telling people they're doing something wrong. No one likes to hear that. You have to just put the tool in their hand. And that's what, what we're trying to do. Nice. Um, speaking of putting the tool in their hand, uh, as I mentioned, I can't get impossible food here in Spain. When when is that going to change? 
<laughs> we're working on it. Um, we uh, have had some good good success with our international expansion. Uh, we recently launched in Canada. That was huge. We're in um, uh, Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore. We're, we're um, looking very heavily at, at Asia because that's where emerging demand is, is really happening. Diets are shifting away from what's historically been plant-based into what is now much more kind of a consistent with what we eat in the, the global North and West, which is very meat-based. Um, so you're going to see like an 88% increase in demand for beef products in um, the Asia Pacific region over the next couple of decades. So big focal area there. The EU, which I, is where you are, uh, yeah. is also a big focus area because there's such high levels of meat consumption. We're just going through the regulatory uh, steps to make sure that that we're all squared away to uh, to go to market. So I'm anticipating that that will not be a long timeline, but it will be a little bit longer. Okay. Okay. And you said you're hoping to get to price parity with meat as well. And I presume that's region based as well, but what kind of time scale are you looking at there? You know, I, I'll quote our, um, our president, Dennis Woodside. He recently um, made the statement that you can count on one hand the n- number of years it's going to take us to get to price parity. So um, we are very uh, aggressive in moving on this. Wow. Amazing. Fantastic. Uh, Rebecca, we're coming toward the end of the podcast now. Uh, the one question that comes to mind, I guess, when, and I ask a lot of people this on the podcast is, you know, considering all the things we've been talking about so far and all the problems that we're facing and all the challenges that you are facing as an organization to change people's habits, are you optimistic for our future? I go back and forth. I'll, I'll be pretty candid with you. I go okay. back and forth. Um, I, I think that there is a tremendous amount of power in, in innovations and solutions like the ones that the plant-based meat industry and Impossible Foods are bringing. I also just think there's so much more work to do um, very, very broadly. And one of the things that I'm hoping to see and that will always drive optimism for me is, I think, a burgeoning awareness of the individual day-to-day power that we have. Because right now, um, most most of the general population, whether in the United States where I am or or globally, does not recognize our diets as, um, as a powerful thing they can do for the climate. There was a UN report that asked people what do you think is is the the most effective way of addressing climate change? And everyone agreed on deforestation. Let's end deforestation, um, which is mostly driven by meat consumption. But the least popular tactic was changing our diets. Mm. Um, we need to change that. We need to to create greater awareness. And Impossible Foods is not going to rest or premise our business model on the fact that that can happen. But personally, I will be incredibly excited when I can when I when I feel like especially youth activists, especially this younger generation of folks who are looking for ways to really, really be leaders in the space. We need to be talking about our diets the same way we're talking about energy, the same way we're talking about transit, same way we're talking about built environment and even more so, because this is something that's not just atmospheric carbon. This is we're losing wildlife we're losing biodiversity and we will reach a threshold where we can't get that back. And that's going to have implications for, for humans. That's going to affect us too. Nature for nature's sake. That's where I am. Nature for human sake. Uh, that's I think where we should all be a little more conscious of, um, you know, the trade-offs, but consumer awareness building, you know, it's, it's happening. It's moving slowly. I want it to move faster and the faster it moves, the more optimistic I get. Nice. Nice. Do you eat meat? Yeah, every once in a while. So here's the context. I'm married to a Brazilian. 
it's very difficult for us to not have meat in the house. Um, The highest on the food chain I'll go is chicken. Um, But I'm also, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Minnesota. Um, The thing is, I eat it incredibly rarely. I'm kind of our target market in that it's difficult to, to substitute. Um, and you need something else in your household that you can go to, you know, uh, especially at a barbecue. Um, I can bring impossible burger to the in-laws barbecue and that's, that works. Right. If I bring a break of tofu, that's a little (laughs) bit harder sell. (laughs) So I eat meat sparingly and rarely, but within kind of a cultural context that it's hard to get away from. Fair enough. We're wrapping up now. Is there any question I have not asked you that you wish I had any topic that we've not addressed that you think it's important for people to be aware of? You know, I, the the only point I always want to bring it back to is biodiversity. We're, we're talking about climate change and that's received so much terrific attention, um, so much uh, youth activism, but extinction and biodiversity loss, that's the next big frontier that I hope we all turn our attention to. And the way that we eat has so much... Um, has so much to do with that and to do with with the success or the failures that we're going to have over the next couple of decades. So from a conservation perspective, uh, for those of us who who really value wildlife and nature for nature's sake, um, I hope that we start thinking about our diets uh, a lot more. Superb. Superb. Rebecca, that's been really fascinating. If people want to know more about yourself or about Impossible Foods or any of the topics we discussed on the podcast today, where would you have me direct them? You know, our, our website uh, it does a pretty good job of, of making sure everything is uh, linked and easily accessible. There's uh, one URL in particular, so www.impossiblefoods.com slash sustainable food. Uh, that's also where you can find a lot of our sustainability numbers, our impact reports, uh, resources to learn more. Uh, so uh, I would direct folks there. Superb. Superb. Rebecca, that's been great. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Nice speaking with you. And good luck with the house repairs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need it. Thank you. Okay, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to know more about Climate 21, feel free to drop me an email to tom.raftery at sap.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you liked the show, please don't forget to subscribe to it in your podcast application of choice to get new episodes as soon as they're published. Also, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It really does help new people to find the show. Thanks. Catch you all next time.